Well, every day um, we have opportunities. There are choices that are presented before us every single day, and we have to decide oftentimes how are we going to respond. And a lot of the times those questions of how we're going to respond to the needs that present themselves to us are the question, are, is, are we going to self-protect um, or are we going to die to self? Are we going to self-preserve or are we going to sacrifice for others? And that question comes up and it, it plays a factor in a lot of decisions that we make. And I have some questions for you. And these questions, they come courtesy of a friend of mine and some of them, some that some of you know him. His name is Adam Gruzy. You know him, some of you. Um, some questions from him. And I thought they were good questions, so I, I stole them. Um, so I, here they go. The question, am I going to, throughout the week, am I going to take out the trash or am I going to make someone else in my family do it? Am I, gonna, am I going to relax and watch my favorite TV show? Or am I going to play with my kids or maybe grandkids? Well, that's probably really easy, so <laughs> the grandkids part. No, I'm going to, am I going to, to take time to listen to my spouse or will I immediately defend myself? Will I give up the evening I had planned for myself to care for another family and deepen that relationship? Or am I going to, to blame shift so that I don't have to look so bad? Or will I step up and take responsibility, even if it, I think it, people won't understand me fully? Or they think something about me that I'm at fault? We have choices to make. Are we going to self-preserve or are we going to die to self? And as we get into the story today, of the story of Ruth, the account of Ruth, we have two Redeemers, they make different decisions about how they're going to respond to the situation of Naomi and Ruth. If you remember Naomi, she's, she's in this dark valley that we've been talking about. She's been walking through this cloud of darkness. Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons, they had left the promised land. They left Judah and they left and they went to Moab. There was famine in the land. So they're escaping that famine, and they go to Moab. And in Moab, remember, the husband dies, Elimelech dies, the two sons die. But before they die, they'd married Moabite women, but these Moabite women had no children. So there's no grandchildren. There's no one to carry on, remember, the name of Elimelech, to carry on that family line. And with that, there's the inheritance. There's inheritance of land, which is an important part of being part of the nation of Israel, is having land that was given to you, inherited by God. And that is all at risk for Naomi. She goes back, remember she goes back to Judah, and she leaves Moab, but she leaves, she feels she's leaving completely empty. She went there full and leaves, and she's empty going back without husband and sons. But she's not fully empty. Remember, she has Ruth, one of the daughter-in-laws that clings to her, that binds her life and her future with Naomi, but not just with Naomi, but with the one true God, with Yahweh, the God of Israel. and She's decided to put her, her life under the refuge, under the wing of God. And Naomi, though, is still in a time of darkness, but that seems to be lifting. That cloud of just despair that Naomi has been in is lifting. It's lifting because of God's loving kindness, his steadfast kindness to them. Through the person of Ruth. Ruth is, again, lovingly served and went with Naomi. 
And then now we have Boaz that we talked about last week and the the week before. How Boaz is one is they've gone back and gone back to Israel, gone back to Judah, that Ruth finds herself gleaning, gathering from the leftovers of the harvest in the field of Boaz. And Boaz is that close relative, one who can step in and marry Ruth and continue on that line and rescue that land and redeem it. And Boaz has stepped in and said, I will be that redeemer, but there's still another one. There's someone, a relative closer to you that's first in line to step in to marry Ruth and to redeem that land. And I have to go to him first. So there's some question, some rescue that's unresolved. And today we see that rescue come in and we see that cloud removed. But as we walk through that, we see two different people. We have this Redeemer, where Boaz says, hey, I have to go to this one who's next in line, this next closest relative who can redeem and marry Ruth and, and redeem this land, and I need to go to him first. And we're going to see that as we enter in, and we see this one, this first Redeemer. And he's the nameless, really a self-protecting, self-preserving Redeemer that we see in verses 1 through 6. Let's start in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer who, of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. So here, Boaz, he goes straight away that morning. He goes to the gate at Bethlehem. He doesn't leave anything undone and hanging. He goes after it. He's not easily distracted, I think. If, if there's ever been uh, a generation or a time where people have been distracted, we are, we are in the midst of it. <laughs> I know even just this week when I was writing this, I thought of someone I wanted to message on, on Facebook. So I got on Facebook to message them, but then I saw a couple posts and I scrolled down and then I thought to myself, why am I on here? I don't even remember. So I closed it down and later I remembered, oh yeah, I was on there to message. But we're just easily distracted. But Boaz, he goes right to it. He doesn't leave anything undone. He, he's, just not, he's not just all talk saying, hey, I'm going to do this tomorrow. And then he's like, oh, well, actually, I need to do this and this and this. And I have a lot of personal things I need to do. But no, he steps up to the plate and he does what he says he's going to do. And he follows through and does it. He's a man of character, of honor. He's a worthy man, as we've seen. And this is who Boaz is. And he goes to the gate in the towns during that time. Most of them were on high points, hills that had gates and walls around the cities for protection. And more often than not, then the fields and the source of water was outside of the city. So, so in a given day, a lot of people would be going in and out. So if you wanted to find somebody, that's a great place to go. So Boaz, he goes to this gate. And a gate, it's not just like a single gate, a single door, but it's, it's a, a complex where there's different rooms and alcoves, places where you can meet and gather. It's a place of business. It's a place also of legal transactions and social transactions. So it's a little bit like the town hall and the courthouse all in one place. And the elders would be there and disputes would be listened to and transactions would happen. So this is the perfect place for Boaz to go to find this other close relative of Ruth, or really of Naomi, and to propose that he would step in as a redeemer. So that's what happens. And as they're there, it says, behold, or lo and behold. Again, as we've seen this before, it's not just happenstance. God is working out all of these circumstances from really small things to really big things. And he's in the midst of this, bringing about his redemption plan, not just for Ruth and Naomi, but for all of Israel through what is happening here. And even 
for us. So it continues, and he says to this man, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And this word for friend, um, it's literally translated, could translate it as, hey, such and such. Or, hey, I think Paul Miller in his book says, Mr. So-and-so. Or the New English translation says, John Doe. So it's a little more than friend. And it, one comment, commentator said, the translation of friend, it obscures really the narrator's purpose of omitting the man's name. Now, Boaz, he, of course, knew the man's name. He, it was probably maybe a cousin of his. It was someone he knew. But as it's being retold, his name is lost in history. We don't even know this man's name. It's lost to history. And he says, hey, Mr. So-and-so, Redeemer so-and-so, come, come sit down. And he comes and he sits down to listen. In the verse 2, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So he calls the elders of the city, calls ten of them together that they can be a witness. They, they would help with disputes or making sure that things are done well. So he wanted there to be witnesses to make clear of what was happening, to make this a solid decision between these two men. So the elders come. Then verse 3, then he said to the Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. So here again, the the elders come and he presents this situation. And he kind of goes step by step presenting the situation to this redeemer so-and-so. And he explains, you know, Naomi, she's selling her land, the land of her deceased husband, Elimelech. And now there's a lot of technical different things that are going on in regard to the sale of the land and how land was used. And someone who had a land that there was inheritance, they could even sell the, the right to profit from that inheritance. And there are several different ideas of exactly what exchange is happening here in the sale of the land. But I found the most helpful, concise explanation of this sale that was explained by Pastor David Strain in his commentary. And he said, Ruth is selling not actually, uh, not actually the land itself, but the right to use the land and to profit from the land. She gets the use of the benefits and profits from the land, and that's what she's selling here in order to bride for herself and her daughter-in-law amidst, amidst their destitution. So that's what's going on. And then Naomi, also if Naomi does have an heir through a child through Ruth, that child would be one who could buy back that land and use the land for itself. So the Redeemer, the closest relative also of Naomi, didn't just have an an option of stepping in, but these relatives, there was more of an obligation to provide for Naomi and become a Redeemer. And then it continues in verse 4. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it. And after, and, and I come after you. And he said, the man said, the redeemer so-and-so says, I will redeem it. So, this opportunity is presented before him, and as he looks at it, this first redeemer, he sees it's convenient. I'm going to gain a lot from this. This is a good financial decision. It's a no-brainer. Yep, I'll redeem it. Of course I'm going to. Yes, I will. And then verse 5 comes in. Then Boaz says, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, 
You also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So, so here then comes the, oh, wait, there's more, right? Um, there's, you need to read, there's some fine print here. So he's wise. He kind of goes step by step, and then he, he brings the fine print in. It's a little bit, it reminds me of those commercials on TV for different new medicines that are out that praise of all the good things, and quickly they're like, duh, 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 and you're all, all of your fingernails may fall out, and your heart will stop, and you may die <laughs> at the very end, and then, and then while someone's dancing in a field. And like. So he kind of comes in, he's, hey, hey, there's, there, there's some strings attached. With this land, you also must marry Ruth. Remember the Moabite. He probably said the Moabite, you know, because he's like, she's not an Israelite. The, who, who has, uh, who married the son of one of Naomi's sons, but that son has passed away. And remember that one that's bound his life with Naomi. Yes, Ruth. Um, she comes along with this deal. And the, there, I'm sure he knows that if a child is born of Ruth and this child in the line of Elimelech, he will continue to have rights of this land. And he will take back the land as his inheritance. And uh, this redeemer, so-and-so, their self-preserver, uh, thinks it over a little bit better. And he's like, hmm. In verse 6, he says, And the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself. Least I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So as we, we read here, he sees, ah, this is in the long run. It's probably not a good deal for me. How about, how about you go ahead and take this? Because that child of Ruth, the one that would be in the line of Elimelech, he's going to take that land back, and he, can, he may even damage my own inheritance, and the other kids from Ruth would, would take a piece. And uh, this is only loss for me. So for us that we know Boaz and his character, we're like, yay, he turned it down. But we have Mr. So-and-so, this nameless one who seeking to preserve himself, and he doesn't step into what was really an obligation for him as a closest relative. And we're going to see as he seeks to preserve himself, we know his name is lost to history. There's a little irony there. Let me read I think we read a few weeks back back about this transaction of this marriage in Deuteronomy 25 in the law. But let me read it again. We're reminded that if someone, a husband passes away and there's no children, that a brother's to step in and to marry that wife, that the inheritance and the line might go on. This is in verse 5 of Deuteronomy 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in to her and take her as his wife and perform the duties of a husband's, uh, of a husband's brother to her. And now we see also uh, a close relative as well could step in. And, for, and the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of, his, of Israel. So it's interesting that he's to step in so that the name will continue. But then the one who's wanting to preserve himself, again, his name is lost. And it continues in that chapter in Deuteronomy. And it, it says then, if that brother refuses and he will not redeem, this is what um, the wife of the, the brother that's passed 
the way he can do. Verse 9, Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. So it was a big deal for him to kind of step down and not be willing to step into this. Again, this man's name disappears from history. He's still just Mr. So-and-so to us. And he seeked to, to preserve himself. He didn't want the burden of Ruth and Naomi. It's really the opposite of the love that we've been talking about in Ruth. This word in the Hebrew that hesed. The word that means this loving kindness. This stubborn, steadfast love. So it's the opposite of this love. It's the opposite of the love that Ruth has showed Naomi. Remember, Naomi, she's left husband, or she's left her, her mom and her dad and all of her land and all of her customs and all of her people and bound herself to Naomi and gone with her. And then Boaz, it's the opposite of the love of Boaz, who's willing to risk all and ultimately the opposite of the love of the one true God and the love of God that's made crystal clear for us in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, our Redeemer. So there's the opposite here. As we look to the steadfast love, the picture in Ruth, and that demonstrated by Boaz and Ruth, we need to remember um, that the one who they're all pointing to is the one true God and points us again ahead to Jesus Christ in his love for us. And we are called in so many different ways to love with that type of love, to love with that costly love. And it's a love that does cost. It's a love that often means loss for us. It's a love that we're called to love others that means that we're inconvenienced sometimes. It makes life messier. It makes our plans not go quite the way that we maybe thought they should go. One example that I think of when I think of this type of love is, is in Kelly's family, her older sister and her husband, they had, having this last year, they've adopted one of the friends of their teenage daughter. So one of their daughters who's in high school has a, a really good friend, has become close to the family. And the, the situation with her mom and dad, um, they were out of the picture, and, and she was with her grandma, but it just wasn't a good situation. And they stepped in and, in a sense, redeemed her. <laughs> and and it, de- it didn't mean that life was less complicated, uh-huh. as you can imagine, um, Not many of us think about adopting a a teenager into our home. But that's the kind of love that we see. And we have to ask, as we make decisions, what are the foundations of the decisions that we make? What is the bedrock, the foundations of the decisions that we make in our life? Is it, do we begin with the gospel? Do we begin by looking at Jesus and his stubborn, loyal, kind love for us? that he showed to us, do we begin with that? Or do we begin with what's most practical, what's most beneficial to us, what will help us most? I think of John 12, 25 through 26 in the Gospel of John that says, whoever loves his life, whoever loves his life loses it. Your words of Jesus. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant also be. If if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. A call to die to self and serve, serve our Lord. So where's our foundation? Where do we begin? 
And aren't you thankful that we have a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who wasn't like Redeemer so-and-so. One who wasn't self-preserving, but one who, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think of that, of Jesus there. He was filled with sorrow up to the point of, of death. And he had sweats, sweat drops of blood as he thought and thought and looked to the cross. And that he would bear the full weight of our sin, the wrath of God the Father upon himself. And he prayed to the Father that if there be any other way that this cup might pass, that there, would there be another avenue to redeem? But then he said, nonetheless, not, I, not as I will, but as you, as, as you will. So we have a redeemer who's not a self-preserving, self-protecting one, but one who died for us, and we're called to walk as he walks. And then we see the second redeemer. We see Boaz, verses 7 through 10. He's a loving Redeemer, not a self-preserving one. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So here there's this custom that comes in that even those who were the original audience of Ruth, uh, they didn't know this custom and it had gone out of of practice. Uh, but there was a practice that to seal a deal, you would take a shoe off a sandal and give it to the other person. And we don't know why. I don't know why that custom was about. Maybe it was just because it was a really obvious way to everyone that something important has happened because you took off a shoe and gave it to someone. It just doesn't normally happen. And you walk away with just one shoe on. You're like, what did you do today? Well, you know, I had this transaction. And I don't know. I'm not sure. But it seems that maybe just it's this really clear picture. Something has happened. So verse 8. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, he drew off his sandal. And he gives it then to Boaz. So we see this happen. There's a transaction is made. And Boaz now has the opportunity to redeem. Has opportunity to be the one who marries Ruth. Verse 9 and 10. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belongs to Elimelech and all that belongs to Kilian and Malon, and also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to um, perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gates of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So he's just making so clear I am stepping in. I am the Redeemer. And this is a loving step. He was risking. If this other Redeemer recognized the risk, I'm sure Boaz did as well, but he's willing to step in and redeem. And again, it's that picture of the love of God and that of, our Jesus, of Jesus Christ who redeemed us, who took on flesh that became a servant to the point of death, even death on the cross, as we see in Philippians 2. And he is the one, the only one who can rescue. And sometimes, sometimes in our life, we do go after so many so-and-so redeemers, so many false redeemers, so-called redeemers, things that we think can rescue. And in this world, we, we do seek to be rescued, to be, we seek life, we seek peace, we seek rest, and we seek even just to be enough. Do we measure up? Are we enough? 
We seek after these things. And sometimes we, we go after a lot of false so-and-so type redeemers who will not redeem us, will not rescue us. And, and we, we're, we're not able to rescue ourselves as well. Our youth won't redeem us. Our strength can't redeem and rescue us. Our intellect can't do that. It can't step in and rescue and redeem us. A gluten-free kale diet ugh, can't redeem us. Our strict adherence maybe to an exercise or diet plan, it will not make us enough. Our own loyal polit- loyalty to a political party or movement, that won't redeem us. Our rigorous attention to f- our physical bodies, it's just not enough. They don't redeem us. And there are so many different ways. There's this great book um, by an author, his name is David Zoll, and he writes about seculosity. And it's his own word that he came up with. So if you, if you don't know that word, it's because it's, it's a, his own made-up word. But it's the idea that in our day, in our time, in our secular world, as we have jettisoned a lot of what the Bible has said, our culture still is seeking righteousness. They're seeking to be enough. Am I enough? Do I... I Add up. Do I, am I righteous in the eyes of others? And sometimes we do that through our diet. Sometimes we do that through the way that we live our life. And we try to be enough. And he just walks through all those. The, the title is Seculosity, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Become Our New Religion and What to Do, and what to do About It. That's a really good book. But there's just so many different ways where our culture still screams out, I want to be enough. And they look for all of these things. And COVID has opened up a whole new door of ways that we can be enough. Do we adhere to this or adhere to that? And it's been a battle to be enough. Even in the little things. This is really a silly story, but I think it'll capture it. Um, and if it doesn't, then I'll just, just feel really silly. But that's okay. Because I'm not enough, only in Jesus, right? So maybe on your phone, your phone's like my phone, where it tells me each week my screen time. And how well I'm doing. Am I doing good? Have I done less? And, and it reports to me. And I'm the only one that sees that. So it really doesn't, it doesn't matter. But this week, I downloaded an audio file onto my phone. And I have this app that I'll play audio files on. But this app, a lot of times, it will just randomly close down. And it's frustrating because i got to open it up again. And I was going to drive, and I didn't want it to shut down. But I knew for it not to shut down, I was going to have to leave my screen on. And I was like, oh, no, this is going to add up my screen time. And this is going to bump up my number. Then I was like, this is so crazy. No one even sees this. But I want to be enough. And um, by the way, my, I, today it told me my screen time was down this week. So... So it worked out okay, even though I left it on. But there's just so many ways where we look for these things to redeem us, to make us enough, but they will always fall short. We need Jesus. And Jesus is so much greater than this redeemer, Boaz, who risked. We have one who was inconvenienced and suffered all for us on the cross. He is the only one that can make us enough. All of these other things will always fall short and leave us empty because we're not created for them, but we're created for a relationship with Jesus Christ and a relationship with God the Father through Christ. 2 Corinthians 8 through 9, for you know that grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 
were made whole in him who became poor for us. Philippians 2, 6 and 8. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Romans three twenty three through 25. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So Jesus is the only one who can save. He's the only one that can redeem. He's the only one that can make us enough because we always will short apart from him. And he took on all cost, all loss, dying for us on the cross, then rose again victorious that we might have his love, his peace, and rescue in him. So we need to stop seeking it in all, all of the wrong places, but instead seek it in Christ. We need to abide in him as we talked about at the beginning of this year. And we're going to actually talk about that a little bit next week, I think. We need to abide. We need to abide in Jesus. Abide in His love. I was reminded this week of a quote by Matt Chandler. It's one of my favorites. He says, "God doesn't love a future version of you. He loves you now." Stop striving. We have a Redeemer who's not a so-and-so self-protective one, but one who died for us, Jesus Christ, on the cross and then rose again. So this week, maybe the first step, maybe you. Just wrestling, you're seeking righteousness in so many different places and you have yet to find it, that enoughness, that peace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. This day I encourage you to rest, to turn from your sins and yourself and rest in Jesus Christ alone. If you want to learn more about that, to let me know or grab one of those cards and just mark that you want to learn more about that. And second, just as we make decisions throughout this week, may we begin with the gospel. May we begin with the loving kindness of our Redeemer. And from that, Walk and make our decisions and find our enoughness in him alone and serve just to serve and to love as he did us. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for this book of Ruth.